I find myself saying everywhere we go, preaching away how blessed we are, and we're really blessed to be here. We've been hosted handsomely, uh, true Northern Ireland style, and uh, we're just thankful to be part, a small part of what's happening here, the blessing of God. Uh, Sister Sarah said to me on Friday, or she asked me, are you nervous about preaching on Sunday? And I said, well, it's probably one of the biggest crowds I've ever faced, you know, uh, in recent times. But I said, not really nervous, but just very conscious that I step up in a place where God is blessing and moving. And one never wants to impede that or in any sense be free uh, in a way apart from that flow that God is already moving in. And so I welcome your silent prayers as I bring the word because I want it just to be part of what God is doing here and asking a rich blessing upon the word this morning as we turn together. Our principal text is found in Genesis, the 32nd chapter. Genesis, the 32nd chapter. That's a lovely sound. <laughs> Bible pages turning, wonderful. Genesis, the 32nd chapter. Uh, but I just want to quote one verse from Galatians, which perhaps we can just listen to, and then we'll come to our text in Genesis. In Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20, well-known verse, the Apostle Paul said these words. He said, I am crucified with Christ, Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then moving directly into Genesis, the 32nd chapter, beginning in verse number 24. It says, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. When he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast 
prevailed. And God shall bless his word to our hearts. And I pray the message also in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob has returned from his years with Uncle Laban, approximately 20 years with him. And Jacob hasn't come back on a whim. He hasn't come back just because Uncle Laban has made life difficult. Jacob comes back under the command of God and with the blessing of God. Earlier in that chapter, as Jacob prays, he recites the command of God and his promise. God has said to him, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. He comes back also a man who is humbled by the sense of the abundance of God's blessing. In that same prayer we find in verse number 10 that Jacob says towards the end of that verse, For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. When he left Canaan, just a solitary man with a shepherd's staff, now he's returning uh, with two wives, eleven children, men, servants, maids, servants, flocks and herds. God has blessed him, and Jacob has become a man of substance. I want us to catch the picture here because Jacob is moving in obedience to God. Jacob has the promise of God's blessing and safekeeping. Jacob is conscious of the blessing of God all through those years. And yet, Jacob is still afraid of his vengeful and murderous brother Esau. In verse number 7 it says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. In his prayer in verse 11 he prays, Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And dear friends, it's possible, I believe, at times, we can move in obedience to God, we can have the sense of the promise of God in blessing upon us, we can know the blessing of God from the past, and yet, dear friends, we're facing something, perhaps we're facing someone or some crisis in life, and we seem to lack, if I could use a colloquial expression, we seem to lack the kazunk of the conviction of God. There's something still needed in Jacob, and I find myself, friends, there's often something still needed in myself. We can live a life which is pleasing to God in obedience to God. We can live with the sense of God's promise and blessing upon us. We can know the blessing of God from the past and how God has come through. And yet sometimes when we're facing a decision or a situation or a confrontation even, we seem to lack that something of conviction which really persuades us that God is going to come through. And God brings us to those places as he brings Jacob to this place because number one, God wants to bring Jacob deeper into himself. He wants Jacob to dig deeper into the Lord. 
And secondly, dear friends, God wants to perform a work in Jacob's heart. How many can say, dear friends, that God is a God of the heart? In England, where we come from, friends, I can't begin to describe the conditions over there. But in church circles, there's a tremendous amount of uh, education, information, filling people's heads with knowledge. I'm not against knowledge, but folks want to know more and more and be up to speed on this and get the gen on this. And I find myself praying in this time, Oh God, can we return to the preaching that comes to the heart? that changes the heart of men, that challenges the heart of men, that does a work in our hearts and changes us because God wants to bring us into conformity to the blessed death of our Saviour Jesus Christ and bring us to a place where we say, but we all with open face beholding as a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Hallelujah. And God wants us to come to a place where he can do that work in our hearts. Hallelujah to God. Now the first thing we learn about Jacob is this, and Jacob was found or left alone. Dear friends, for many of us that's a challenge in life. Just to find that place alone. And not just alone, dear friends, but alone with purpose. And not just alone with purpose, but alone with no agenda in time. Because we can close the door on that closet and a thousand things are hammering on that door. Can you say amen? We can come into a place of aloneness with God and determine to seek the Lord. But how many know we live by the thing that hangs off this wrist, our wristwatch, the thing that goes beep, beep from time to time and tells us there's something else that needs to be done. And it's something God has to bring us to from time to time, to a place, dear friends, where there's no other agenda but God. There's no other thought but God. And it's open-ended. It takes as long as it takes. And we find here Jacob in this sense of crisis, facing and fearing Esau on the following day, everything on the line. God brings him to a place at the Ford Jabbok where he is found simply alone. And the marvelous thing is we don't read that Jacob was praying. Or Jacob was calling upon the Lord or weeping or prostrate before the Lord. We just find that Jacob was left alone. Jacob had tried everything. He prayed. Oh yes, he was a man of prayer. But after praying, he sends presents to Esau. Uh, you know, trying to appease him. Jacob has tried everything in his power to secure safekeeping. But there's still something in Jacob's heart that remains uncertain. And we find him alone here. And dear friends, you know, sometimes you find yourself at the end of your tether. You've tried everything. You can hardly even pray. And Jacob here is just there twiddling his spiritual thumbs. And the wonderful thing about our God, dear friends, is this. He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just leave us 
Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And the Lord looks down and sees his servant Jacob in a quandary. He's come to the end of his tether. And the wonderful thing is that God comes down and takes the field. The next thing we find is this, that Jacob is wrestling with this man. They wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. The scholars where I come from and the so-called Bible uh, theologians where I come from have tried to muddle the waters and make some kind of confusion about who this mysterious visitor was. But Jacob was under no illusion, dear friends. In verse number 30, he simply said, I have found, I have met with God face to face and my life is preserved. On that riverbank, dear friends, uh, Jacob surely met the mediator, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who saw his servant struggling at the end of his tether, as we are sometimes, friends. And rather than leave us there, he comes down, dear friends, and takes the field, engages in wonderful intimacy with Jacob, and there's going to come a blessing by the end of this glorious passage. Hallelujah, hallelujah. My next question was, why wrestle with him? Why not just come down as he did with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why not just sit under the tree and converse with Jacob on that riverbank? Why did God wrestle with him? I can't prove this scripturally, but I can prove it by experience. So I can only offer here a conjecture. I believe like myself, and perhaps you're exempted, I'm not sure. But I believe like myself that here was Jacob, and Jacob was wrestling with himself. Ever done that? The old mind going ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, this up, that up, what, up, what, up, what. It's like when you turn those reel-to-reel tapes backwards very quickly, you get that kind of garble. They're wrestling with yourself. And I have found by experience, friends, when I wrestle with myself, I never win. You found that? You go into that mental wrestling, dear friends, and you come from that thing and you're beaten up. You're worse off than when you went into it. It's as if to me the Lord looks down, he sees Jacob wrestling with himself and there's nothing going to come of that, that's fruitless. And he swoops down upon that dear man, he displaces part of Jacob and involves himself in that conflict, wrestling intimately with Jacob. And dear friends, when God comes on the scene, when God gets involved in the wrestlings of our mind, when God comes into that situation in Ultimately, dear friend, there's no defeat, there's no beating up. It's going to end in blessing and the power of God is going to be mediated, not just to Jacob, but to any one of us, two dear friends, who welcomes Christ in that glorious, intimate conflict sometimes and God is about to bestow a blessing on his servant, Jacob. Hallelujah. How many could do with a blessing in the house this morning? Just the preacher? Amen. And then you read this incredible verse. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
My next question is, how could this puny, fearful man, Jacob, prevail against Almighty God? Why couldn't the Lord overwhelm him and get the victory over Jacob? The Bible says, it's not the will of the Lord that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, dear friends, as we pray and worship and seek God in this building this morning, millions are perishing. Millions are perishing. And millions, come on, let's be honest, do perish. And the incredible thing is that God has given a man and God has given a woman the capacity to resist his will to the grave and beyond to judgment and the lake of fire. It's possible for a man, oh, I resisted God for 38 long years, dear friend, but it's possible for someone to resist God for a lifetime. It's not the will of God that any should perish, but man has the capacity to resist the will of God. And it's possible, just possible, that Jacob here was just a wee bit resistant to the Lord. There's no one in that house today like that, is there? I mean, we never resist him, do we? Is that so? You can say amen or ouch. I don't care. Amen? Thank you. There may have been something in Jacob just a wee bit resistant to the Lord. And dear friends, for God to get the job done, he has to break something in us. He has to disable something in me if he's to get that work done, where he finds a resistance. And so we find God with Jacob, and Jacob is prevailing. He's still resisting God, and God touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. He has to disable something of the flesh life to get the job done. My other thought on this, you might uh, think this is humorous, but anyway... Uh, you know, my son, he's, uh, he's coming up to 48 years old. That gets fearful and frightening, Pastor Tim, when your son is 48 years old. You begin to feel old, you know. But 40 years ago, when he was seven, eight years old, and I was in my 30s, how many know that sons get beyond the stage they don't want to sit on daddy's knee anymore and have cuddly waddles? <coughs> Do you notice that? What are you laughing for? They get beyond the stage when they no longer want cuddly-wuddly on daddy's lap. Daughters last a bit longer. Can you say amen? But sons, see, they grow up, they want to spar, they want to climb trees and jump off bridges into ice-cold water, that kind of stuff. Amen? And sometimes... They want to test their strength against dad. And so instead of sitting on daddy's knee, they want a play fight. Amen. They want to spar with dad. See, and you still enjoy that physical contact with them, but not that cuddly waddly stuff. They want to try their strength and try their metal and see if they can push you over and all that stuff. And I remember my son, he used to enjoy play fights. And 
You know, I, 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 I let him prevail and then I, I, I come back at him and, and, and you know, I, I get, let him get me down on the ground and get one wrist on, on the grass there and I, I pretend to lift it and I'd get the other wrist on the grass and, and then I pretend. And in the end, he'd sit, sit on my chest and have both wrists on the ground and I'd be struggling, pretending, and, and he'd count to three and it's over, I've lost. But at any stage, dear friend, in that play fight, I could have got that little lad and thrown him across the garden. <laughs> I wouldn't play fight him now, mind. <laughs> at any stage, I could have picked up that wee body and thumped him on the ground and made him know that dad is bigger and stronger and all the rest of it and heavier. You know, put my big 12 and a half stone on top of him and say, son, I'm the boss here. But I never did that. I'll tell you why. Number one, I loved him. And number two, if I ground him into the grass and made him know that dad is in charge and bigger and stronger and can throw him across the garden, he'd never come back for another play fight. So that wasn't fun. No more of that. And I believe God's the same, dear friend. He'll enter into that conflict, that uh, wrestling with us, intimate wrestling, that, he let that contact with us. And he allows us to prevail. He allows Jacob to prevail. Number one, because he loves Jacob. Number two, because if God overwhelmed Jacob and ground him into the dust and made him know he's almighty God and Jacob's just a puny man, Jacob wouldn't come back for more. And God wants Jacob back for more. And friends, God wants us back for more. And thirdly, dear friends, he wants Jacob to know that if we prevail with God, there's a blessing as the outcome. Isn't that lovely? There's a blessing. And so I believe God in this wrestling allows Jacob to prevail. He loves Jacob. He loves us. He wants Jacob to come back for another, another round or two some other time. He wants that contact. Dear friend, God is awesome. God is unapproachable in light. Yes, all of those things. But when Jesus Christ came to this world, when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, when the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh, when Genesis 1-1, the Creator walked on this planet. He was in the world and the world was made by Him. But my dear friends, when He walked on this earth, you could touch Him. You could take a hold of Him. You could be intimate with Him. John says we handled the word of life. There was a lady in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, a sinful lady came in. Jesus was having a snack with one of the Pharisees and she came in and just stood there and sobbed and wept and got down and washed his feet with her tears and wiped those feet with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Even that sinful, repentant lady could take a hold of the word of life, friends. And God wants us to take a hold of him. He's an intimate God, can you say amen? He is afar off in that wonderful sense of awesomeness, but he's also an intimate God. He wants us to come very close to where he is.
God's complaint to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 64 is simply this. There's none that taketh hold of God. And friends, would we take hold of God when there's crisis? But don't wait for crisis. Just wait for tomorrow morning or later today and get there and take a hold of the lovely Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Hallelujah. And then we read this. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. ding a ling a ling Jacob. Breakfast time, son. Two wives, eleven children, men servants, maid servants, flocks and herds, and he saw there's lots of things to be done. Jacob, it's time to stop this and do something practical. How many times have I missed the blessing of God? Because I allowed something practical to pull me from his presence. How many times did I miss the blessing of God because the old beeper went off in my mind and I thought, well, I'll just leave this here, Lord, and go and do the other thing. But not Jacob, no. This is life and death, or death. This is survival. This is everything. This is crisis time. And Jacob says, I'll not let you go except you bless me. Because, dear friends, unless Jacob has the blessing of God upon him, what's it all worth? He needs that great conviction on the inside which says that God is going to follow through on his promise. And he said, I've found what I'm looking for. I've got intimacy with the Lord. I'm in contact with God. I'm not leaving go until I know the blessing and assurance of God in my heart. They can make their own breakfast. They can sort themselves out. The men servants and maid servants can do what they will. The flocks and herds can run wild as far as I'm concerned. Because what's it all worth? Unless I have the blessing of God direct from heaven, it's all over anyway. Esau rules okay with 400 men. I must get the assurance that God is going to come through in blessing. You notice in that we don't hear God repeating his promise, friends. No. You don't hear God assuring Jacob of anything of that kind. Jacob has found the answer. He's found the Lord. He's just hanging on. He's found that contact with the Lord and he simply hangs on to the Lord and waits for the blessing. Hallelujah. I'll not let you go except you bless me. And it seems to me the Lord would almost say, okay, son, you want a blessing. Now, dear friends, in England, you have them perhaps over here, we have what we call the Bless Me Club churches. You got those here? The Bless Me Club churches. Now, please understand what I'm saying. God wants to bless you. He does. But everything, everything, it's blessing, 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 and there's no cost. It's a no-cost gospel. 
Blessing sometimes involves a cost. Not always, but sometimes involves a cost. And God in this intimate encounter is almost saying, it seems to me to Jacob, okay, son, you want the blessing. Here's the cost. And the next question is, he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. Now, personally, I don't think the Lord didn't know his name. I don't think the Lord has forgotten his name. Do you? I don't. But he asks him, what is thy name? Now, name, as you know in the scriptures, often denotes character. And I would see this simply this way, that God says, okay, son, you want the blessing. Here's the question. What's your character? What kind of man are you? He says, Jacob, I'm a usurper. I'm a twister. I'm a controlling man. I'm a man that gets my own way. I'm a man that gets one over on somebody else. I'm a wily man. I'm a cunning man. And see, when God comes to me, and confronts me and says, what kind of man are you? I'll put this in just personal terms. What kind of man are you? He's not asking me to say, well, I'm marvelous, Lord. I'm brilliant, I am. You know, I get up to pray in the morning and, you know, we do open airs and pass out tracts and we minister here and there and I'm, I'm just super duper. We send out the newsletter. We don't send out the newsletters, actually. But, you know, I'm marvelous, I am, Lord. He's not asking me that. And that's not true anyway. No one is marvellous but the Lord. Amen. (laughs) At best, we're unprofitable servants, aren't we? But amen. When he comes and says, what kind of man are you? What he's normally looking for is, what is your current weakness? Where are your struggles? What needs to be changed about you, son? And dear friends, he's looking for us, because he knows already, he's looking for any one of us to humbly confess our needs. Do you have any needs? Humbly confess our faults. Do you have any? What about weaknesses? Or you're all done and dusted. I'm not. He comes, he wants me, he wants to hear me say, Lord, I am struggling with this, I have an attitude, I've got unforgiveness in my heart, I need to settle this with someone, I haven't got the bottle to do it, Lord, well, you know, and I'm trying to push this thing away over there somewhere where it doesn't bother me anymore, but it keeps on coming back like the noontide. He wants me to be honest about where I'm at in my weaknesses, in my flesh even, He wants me to own up to the kind of man I am, not just to shame me, friends, but because he wants to change me. He wants to change me. He wants to offer the opportunity of change. And dear friends, if we protect that area, if we refuse to deal with God in honesty, if we say, well, I'm not going there, I'm not going to talk about that, I don't want to know that. God knows it. And dear friends, that area in life will never get dealt with. 
It's like that vision in Ezekiel's prophecy, I think it's chapter 47, uh, where you find the, the, the living waters coming from that typical uh, temple there, and they're going out there deeper and wider, and everywhere that river touches, there is life. But as you read that prophecy in vision, you find there are marshy places. Dear friends, I can tell you God's found many marshy places in my heart over the years. And if I put a fence round those things and say, we're not going there, Lord, nothing changes. Have you met Christians? I've been saved uh, just over 35 years. But have you met Christians, say, uh, saved 35 years, and they're still the same in some areas? They still react the same. There's still that hardness somewhere in there. Simply because they've not open themselves to the dealing of God that would change that, friends. Oh, when God comes to me and says, what kind of man are you? He expects me to be absolutely honest because he knows my heart in the first place. How many know you can't hide anything from God, but he wants us to confess it to him. He wants us to acknowledge it. He wants us to say, Lord, that's right. That's the kind of man I am. I'm still struggling with that. I'm still weak in that area. And then cry for the mercies and compassions and the grace and power of God to change me. And how does God change us, friends? He changes us by the cross. By the application of the cross of Christ. And sometimes the application of the cross of Christ is painful. Uncomfortable. Distressing. Embarrassing. The application of the cross. And so God purposes here to change the character of Jacob. And he says on confession of Jacob's, here in this verse, he says, okay, he says, and thy name shall be called no more Jacob but Israel. Now I just want to read that in a particular way. I'm preaching, by the way, from the Living Bible, the King James Version. Hope you got one. Because the words are so exact. They're like a gymnasium. Not that I'm in a gymnasium, but you can kind of exercise on the words. There's a kind of a wonderful uh, uh, correctness and accuracy and, and you can work out in the word of God. I want us just to read it this way if we can this morning. God says to Jacob, okay son, we're fixing to change your character and it all begins here. And he said unto him, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob. No more Jacob. Get the idea? That's where it begins. No more Jacob. No more the usurper. No more the twister. No more the controller of men's lives. No more the one who gets one over on somebody else. No more the get-ahead Jacob. No more Jacob. That's going to go. And that sim seems to me very similar to how Paul is speaking in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. In other words, yet no more Paul. No more of that. Not the ambitious, ruthless, get-ahead, climbing Paul. The man, if you crossed him, he'd bite your head off. Paul still struggled with that, didn't he? You cross the Apostle Paul, look out. Amen. But he knew ideally 
He shouldn't be that way. Amen. He's saying, no more, Paul, but Christ liveth in me. And that's what God wants, isn't it? He's not just going to leave us crucified, dear friends. He wants to replace what we did away with, which was crucified in Christ with a glorious manifestation of the life and power of God that we've never known before. It's death followed by resurrection every time we yield ourselves to God and say, Lord, that needs changing in my life. Lord, will you apply the cross? Will you take me up Calvary's hill again and show me the way? Hallelujah. Let that die off that Christ might live more fully in me in the flow and power of thy Holy Ghost might touch a dying world and dying men and women around me glory to God hallelujah praise his lovely name and so it all begins thy name shall be called no more Jacob no more of that not that kind of man not that kind of character I think someone mentioned that chorus this morning. We don't sing that chorus, but no condemnation. Uh, I'm sure there's a a biblical background to it, but, uh, you know, Jesus, take me as I am. I can come no other way. And there's a, a rhyming line which says, let my flesh life melt away. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be lovely? Go to bed one night, dear sister, with a heart like a swinging brick. And you wake up the next morning and it's all lovely and supple and you didn't know a thing about the thing. (laughs) I'm not sure my flesh life does melt away. I think my flesh life has to be crucified. Do you remember in Mark chapter 15, it comes in Matthew's gospel as well, the custom was allowed, it seems, by the Roman uh, authorities that the poor victims who were going to be crucified were offered some uh, potion of sour wine mixed with myrrh, mingled with myrrh, something which would uh, kind of dull their senses, stupefy them, just disorientate them, take away something of the initial horror and shock of crucifixion. And they offered that potion to Jesus, but he refused it. Why? Because he had to taste death to the dregs for every one of us, dear friends. He would not take any anesthetic, would he? He would not allow anything to block the pain and the horror and the shame that he had to go through for us that we can be here in Ballina Hinch this morning praising God. And dear friends, I, I have to confess, you know, when God wants to deal with part of me and I'm just very conscious this could be painful, I find myself reaching out sometimes for that soured wine mixed with myrrh. Can it be done under anesthetic, Lord? Can the shock be dulled somehow? Can this be more comfortable than I I would like it to be? But really, friends, we have to undergo what God takes us through. And how many can say, when he brings us through, he brings us through in glorious victory. Because all that God does in our lives is to lift us up and to set us on the path of glory in the victory that Jesus won for us on Calvary's rugged cross. Hallelujah. Bless his lovely name. Thy name shall be called, first of all, no more Jacob, but Israel. And that's the first mention of Israel in the Bible. And I'm ever at pains on the... Well, no, you're the mainland. We're the island, I suppose, aren't we? Off the 
You're the mainland, we're the island off the mainland. Got to watch what I say here, Pastor Tim. Won't ask me back otherwise. Um, but on the ma- in England, I find myself laboring this point from time to time. The first mention of Israel in the Bible had nothing per se to do with a natural race of people. It was everything to do with the impartation of divine character. I sometimes wish folks, bless them, God help them, would take their eyes a little bit more off a natural race and point it back to the original instance that God had in mind, a divinely imparted character. Have you ever noticed how the name Israel is so much of Christ's likeness because God doesn't leave it there. He tells Jacob what that name means. Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Here's the explanation. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Dear friends, that's the kind of people God is going to spend his eternity with. It's Christ's likeness. You think of the Lord Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem. Grew up in Nazareth. Apparently the son of Joseph, a carpenter, a nobody, a nothing. Where'd this man get all this learning? Isn't he the son of Joseph, just a carpenter's son? They said, who is this? There was absolutely nothing royal or regal or aristocratic in appearance about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, dear friends, he walked on this earth like a prince. He was the Prince of Peace and the Prince of Life. He was the Lord of Glory, friends. And he walked in the midst of hell on earth as a prince, hallelujah. There was nothing about him visibly that would tell you he was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There was nothing in his manner. Didn't have some great palace or some great headquarters with servants and lackeys running around. Oh no, dear friends. Just a humble band of 12 disciples and one of them was a devil and he walked on this earth and healed people and delivered them from devils and raised the dead and preached the gospel and reproved the religious system of his time and he walked like a prince oh yes he would reprove them but he never came back at them as they came at him there's a wonderful story and this is how God wants us to be there's a wonderful story about Queen Victoria and apparently Queen Victoria was going walkabout among the crowds, as it were, there was security and there was cordons, you know, some kind of protective thing. And as Queen Victoria was walking about, a little doggy got through the boundary. A little doggy got through the cordons of security and did what little doggies do. You may have one that does this. It came up to Queen Victoria and started yapping and barking and getting on and jumping up. Dogs do that, don't they? And the story was the doggy barked to Queen Victoria, but Queen Victoria didn't bark back. She knew who she was. Amen? She knew who she was. Someone took care of that and she just passed on in regal splendor. She knows she's the Queen of England. 
And dear friends, when the Prince of Life walked on this earth, many doggies came along and barked at him. Religious doggies, Herodian doggies, Roman doggies came along and barked at him. He never barked back. He'd tell them the truth. He'd give them a reproof. But he never met them on their own terms, hallelujah. He met them on heaven's terms. And that's how God wants us to walk, friends. That's how God wants us to conduct ourselves by the power of the Spirit, walking as princes and princesses, I guess, on this earth in regal splendor. Nothing royal about this man this morning apart from my jacket. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? There's nothing ostensible, nothing apparent, nothing visible, nothing that you boast of in the flesh, nothing whatsoever. But in our hearts is the King of Kings. In our hearts is royalty, friends. In our hearts is one who is the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Glory and the wonderful Jesus that has saved our wretched souls. In our hearts, and he wants to walk in these shoes and talk through this mouth and, and conduct with his, these arms and, and reach out to people with these hands, dear friends. He wants us to walk as princes on this earth as he walked in calmness and splendor. You never read of Jesus running to catch a bus. And you never read of Jesus doing figures of eight to try and sort out some situation in life. He just was there in his wonderful, heavenly, princely splendor, just ministering from heaven's glory, the word of life. Hallelujah. And then we find in this character, he'll have power with God. He was God. I love those scriptures. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hallelujah. I love Colossians. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him bodily. Hallelujah. I love it, friends. The Creator, I've said before, Genesis 1.1, walking on this planet, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him. And sadly, the world knew Him not. He's still the same today, friends. That world out there does doesn't recognize who this wonderful Jesus is. But thank God this morning, there's a bunch of folks in here who have come to a saving knowledge and revelation and recognition of the glorious Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. He's alive. And dear friends, he had the power of God. But in his patterning of life for us, he never used that He never used that power for personal advantage. Power of God, the treasure lives in these earthen vessels, friends. We're never to use that power for personal advantage. All these folks trying to wring money out of folks, it's a scandal, it's a travesty, friend. We never use the power of God in any form to gain personal advantage. But he had power with God. Cast out those devils right, left and centre. Heal the sick everywhere he went. He was that river, wasn't he? He was that living temple. You see the picture there? He was that living temple. That river was flowing without measure. He was filled with the Spirit of God without measure. And everywhere that Jesus touched, there was life, friends. Everywhere the word was received, there was life. Wonderful life, 
walk and find a funeral procession coming out from the city of Nain. Just say, hold it right there. Touch the coffin. Touch the bier. The man sat up. It's time to rejoice. Hallelujah. And God still raises the dead, doesn't he? He still deals with devils. He still, still heals sick bodies. He's the same. Power with God. And that's what God wants us to walk in, friends. Power of God. Power with men. Yeah. The only impact on a dying world is Christ. Christ in that believer. I've said this so many times in England. God has no blessing for this world except his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that blessing must be imparted through those who know him and in whom he lives. Glory to God. Jesus walking towards the cross. They took up stones to stone him. They tried to chuck him over the cliff in Luke chapter 4, having hounded him from the synagogue. They couldn't. It's like those film trailers where everything freezes, you know. Just walks through them. Not his time. In the Garden of Gethsemane, dear friends, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. They went backward and fell to the ground. For one glorious moment there, the great I am spoke, and they were flattened to a man. Jesus could have talked himself out of Gethsemane, but that was not the plan of God. He had to go to the cross. Just imagine all those soldiers getting up and dusting themselves off, didn't know what hit them. And he answered, well, who are you looking for? Oh, yeah, yeah. But he demonstrated the power. He could have called 12 legions of angels. But he didn't, friends. Why? Because he wanted us to be here in Ballina Hinch this Sunday morning, worshipping and praising and glorifying his lovely name. He did it for us, friends. And when he faced Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, Don't you know, son, I have power to crucify you or to release you? And Jesus looked at that Roman governor. I mean, this is Rome, friends. This is the imperial oversight of the known world. This is the Roman Empire. He looked at Pontius Pilate. They'd scourged him and put a crown of thorns. But he looked at him in his pain and agony and said, You have no power against me unless that power were given you from heaven. Oh yeah, he had power with man. Never used it to his own advantage. And he went to the cross to save our wretched souls. Walking as a prince. Power with God. This is the pattern, friends. Power with man. Power to impact a godless, dying society. And he has prevailed. Somebody mentioned, somebody prayed that marvelous uh, passage in Revelation chapter 5. You remember when John sees there, I'll just quote it to you quickly. He sees this book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And the question comes, who is worthy to open the book uh, and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John gets to weeping. One of the elders says to him, dry those tears, son. You don't need to weep. I'll tell you why. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. But how did Jesus prevail? Let's read it in verse number 9 in that same chapter. You find the saints of God singing. They sung a new song which said, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Friends, he didn't prevail by just being God, as it were. He didn't prevail by just being the great I Am who could wipe the whole thing out in one blow. Oh no, he chose to prevail by sacrifice and by suffering and by bloodshed why, dear friends, again I say, so that we with thousands of others can gather on a Lord's Day morning other times and reach out for him, but gather in his holy name, knowing that we're born again and washed in that blood and gloriously on our way to heaven. He did it, friends, for us, hallelujah, that we can be here this morning as evidences of what we read in this Bible. He prevailed. The Lamb of God has prevailed. And he says to us, if you'll allow me to use that cross against your flesh life, then you can prevail. We'll never prevail by proclaiming we're the king's kids, will we? Ever been there? We were there. Charismatic movement. We're the king's kids. We're going to take the territory everywhere. Our sole of our feet planted will take the land. No. We're not doing any of that, friends. The only prevailing comes by the application of the cross to our lives. It comes by humility. It comes by meekness. It comes by surrender. It comes by submission. It comes by being obedient to God. Even unto death, it says of Jesus, and for many in our world, it is unto death. But it comes by the application of the cross of Christ. And all of this really starts, dear friends, when God says to Jacob, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. No more Paul, but Christ. No more Peter, but Christ. No more Derek, no more Alan, no more Maisie, no more Margaret. I'm just picking names out of a hat. But Christ living in us. And Christ crucified. What did Paul say to that Corinthian church? I determined, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross that brings us there, friends. Change of character conformable unto his death begins when I'm prepared to say, here's my weakness, Lord. Here's my struggle. Here's the problem with me. But I want to say before you, by your grace, no more of that. No more of that, Lord. No more of that. Would you replace that by the activity of the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, in power? My Father, would you take these few words this morning? Would you remove all that's been said by the flesh? 
Would you highlight all that your spirit has spoken? Would you come in manifest blessing to every soul gathered here? Would you touch lives and hearts? Would you help us? Because like Jacob, we are worms. We are frail. We are weak. We do have struggles. Oh God, would you help us though to surrender to the work of the cross, to undergo time and time again that wonderful name change, that character change that brings us into conformity to the death of Christ and conforms us to the image of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. There may be some in this meeting this morning you're facing something. Maybe some have that lack of conviction in some area. Maybe there's a crisis of some kind, a decision of some kind. Maybe there's some issue or even a person in your life. And despite the promises of God and your life of obedience and prayer, you find you lack the conviction that will carry you forward. I want to say, dear friend, take a hold of Jesus Christ. He's waiting for you. Take a hold of Jesus Christ. He'll meet you there. And dear friends, there's a loving pastor here. There are elders here, even myself. But after service, if you want prayer for something to help you to surrender to the work of God, that you might know the victory of the cross of Christ in greater measure and the release of his glorious power, then we'd be very willing and happy to pray for you. Father, bless us all as we come to the close of this message. Imprint upon us thy word of eternal truth. Lord, continue thy work in all of us. Change me, Lord. What did they pray in the Welsh revival? Bend me. Change me. Don't let me stay as I am, Lord. Help me to be honest and confess what needs to be dealt with. And then submit myself to the loving Father that the work of the cross may go on. And we become more and more like him. May God bless you and keep you. God willing, meet again this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.